And welcome to Next Reads, a podcast where we read the first chapter of a young adult or middle grade book to help you figure out what to read next. This podcast might contain language or situations some readers might find offensive or unsettling. The North Liberty Library does not necessarily endorse any author's views, but it does support the freedom of speech and the freedom to read. I'm your host, Kayla, the Youth and Teen Services Librarian at the North Liberty Library. My pronouns are she and her. Welcome, listeners. Happy Black History Month! Today, we're going to be reading from Recognize, an anthology honoring and amplifying Black life. And this was edited by Wade Hudson and Cheryl Willis Hudson. Our authors have written about 20 books each for children, and they also founded the Just Us Books company that produces multicultural books for children. The book we're reading today is a middle grade book published in 2021, and here is the summary. Black Lives Have Always Mattered. Wade Hudson and Cheryl Willis Hudson, the award-winning co-editors of The Talk, bring together some of the most prominent Black creators working today to lend their voices, their insights, and their talents to an inspiring anthology that celebrates Black culture and Black life. Essays, poems, short stories, and historical excerpts blend with a full-color eight-page insert of spellbinding art to capture the pride, prestige, and jubilation that is being Black in America. In these pages, find the stories of the past, the journeys of the present, and the light guiding our future. So this book is an anthology featuring over 30 Black authors and illustrators to honor Black life in the past, present, and future. It's creative and thought-provoking with the perfect balance between heavy content and affirmations. I'm only going to be reading a few essays and poems and some short stories, but I highly recommend looking through the pictures and reading from all of these different authors because I really can't embody this book with just a verbal chapter. So let's get started. And there's an epigraph at the start of the book. It's important for us to also understand that the phrase Black Lives Matter simply refers to the notion that there's a specific vulnerability for African Americans that needs to be addressed. It's not meant to suggest that other lives don't matter. It's to suggest that other folks aren't experiencing this particular vulnerability. President Barack Obama. Forward. No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate, and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love, for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Nelson Mandela. Recognize. In the colloquial language of urban youth, recognize is a verb, a command, or an expression that means to understand, to comprehend something that is already known. Already known, black lives have always mattered. When we were growing up during the late 1960s, our parents told us that black lives mattered. Our lives were important to them, to our extended family, and to our community. No matter what was happening around us, that was a constant truth we were encouraged to embrace. When mean, hurtful words were directed at us, it was true. When our all-black schools were not supplied with the same resources and materials as schools white children attended, it was true. 
Even when government agencies and social and cultural institutions declared we were second-class citizens, it was true. Our black lives mattered. Recognize. Mother Lillian Willis used to say, our roots go deep, meaning that there was much about black life of which to be proud and a rich legacy from which to draw. She shared stories of family elders and ancestors, how they had overcome, persevered, achieved, and fought for rightful and valued places in the world. Mother Loreen Hudson would say, walk with your head held high. That meant we were somebody, no matter what others might have said or thought about us, we were special. She sang African-American spirituals when she needed reassurance and she reminded her attentive children that we were made in the image of God. Our lives mattered because God had created us that way. Robbing us of that comforting reality would be difficult. Recognize. Our teachers told us that black lives mattered too. In their own ways, no matter how facts were distorted or how our history was excluded from textbooks, black lives mattered. They lifted role models to show us and called stories and tidbits from black history to counteract what the book sought to prove, that we did not matter. Because our lives mattered, our teachers said, we had the right to dream too. Because our lives mattered, we could and would push forward to forge a better future, despite seemingly insurmountable hardships. Unfortunately, the idea of black lives not mattering has been woven into the fabric of our general society. It is a product of systemic racism. We encounter it in many places, and we know it when we are confronted by it. We know it by the way some people respond to black folks with contempt even though they do not know us personally. They view us through suspicious eyes and with assumptions melded with stereotypes and caricatures. To them, our skin color speaks for us, ahead of us. We know it when we see people who look like us cast aside, pushed down, profiled, held back, jailed, or beaten, and too often killed, like George Floyd, like Breonna Taylor, like Ahmaud Aubrey, recognize. But in black families, in black homes, children rise for a new school day and their parents get ready for a work day. Some gather in houses of worship on weekends and play in neighborhood parks on late afternoons. On holidays, black people gather to celebrate and engage in family love. Achievements and rites of passage are recognized and celebrated with joy at reunions. Black folks go about their daily lives with hopes and the expectations for aspirations for successful lives, as do others. That black lives matter is obvious. In this anthology, the fact is illuminated by 31 award-winning authors and artists of books for young readers. Recognize clearly documents a narrative that black people have always affirmed and declared. Black Lives Matter. The poetry, essays, short stories, and letters cover a broad spectrum of the black experience, an experience infused with determination, endurance, creativity, pride, and joy, as well as struggle. Among them are the brilliant homage to black storytelling traditions in The Devil and the Flowers, the affirming words of gender and identity in self-reflection, honoring ancestors and claiming my space, self-affirmation through musical expression in drumbeat, ring shout, roll call, cipher, a brave teenager's use of a smartphone camera to capture the horrific murder of George Floyd in Darnella Fraser, Eyewitness, remembering life-altering encounters with police in the storms and sunshine of my life, 
the exuberance of black boy joy in Joy Lives in You, providing crystal clear answers to why black lives matter in Isn't It Obvious? There are excerpts from speeches, poetry, and letters from black forefathers, Frederick Douglass and James Baldwin, and black foremothers, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune, and Daisy Bates, which provide historical context. A thought-provoking essay by activist DeRay McKesson adds an important perspective from the front lines of the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement. Eight outstanding children book artists have created powerful images that also bear witness to the inherent value of Black life. Rendered in a variety of media from oil painting to collage to digital, the artistic styles provide arresting visual statements that complement the author's written testimonies. Recognize pays homage to Black America's clarion call that all Black lives matter and are precious. It does not matter whether others may think differently. As our mothers and fathers declared it, it is so. Recognize Black lives matter. Okay, uh, this is a poem, Miracle Child by Sharon M. Draper. I'm a miracle child, dressed in brown. I wear cocoa and fudge and a chocolate gown. I'm a miracle child, dressed in tan. I sizzle bronze steam in a crunchy baked pan. I'm a miracle child, dressed in gold. I'm a honey bright liquid, sweet and caramel rolled. I'm a miracle child, dressed in cream. I'm fluffed and sprinkled, wrapped in sugar dipped dream. I'm a miracle child, dressed in black. I'm dark sweet licorice and ebony melt snack. I'm a miracle child. Baked with smiles on my face, I'm grilled to perfection, dipped in gravy and grace. I'm a miracle child. This next one is Coloring Outside the Lines by Geraldine Nolan. It looks like it's a short story. The gift of the children's Bible from a family friend was not new, but it had color pictures to go along with the stories I could read. I was nine years old. I thumbed through the book. I stared at the pages. There was something about the pictures that didn't seem right. Sometimes I think that's the way with hand-me-down things. In our house, Daddy always reads the big family Bible out loud to us. He sits in his papa-sized chair and we sit on the floor at his feet. His booming voice sounds like thunder, a sound just right for reading the Bible. And Daddy loves reading out loud. He is such an actor. I especially love hearing him read Genesis. He explains what thou sayeth doth and beget. This and that means. This book didn't have any of those kind of words. My three older sisters weren't interested, so the book became mine. I love all kinds of stories. Some I try to memorize, thanks to my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Harris, who is also a member of our church. She teaches Sunday school, usually with a map to show us where things happened in the world. We learned about people who lived closer to the belt around the Earth's waist, the equator. That's where our ancestors came from and the reason for our skin color and our type of hair. The sun is so hot there. Whenever I get an old or new book, I sleep with it under my pillow. It makes for a bumpy night's sleep, but that's the way I get to know the book. It's the way to make the old or new book mine. I always have lots of questions about the things I'm learning. I didn't think my questions were hard, but it seems most of them were unanswerable. For example, on Sunday in church, we talked about Adam and Eve. Miss Harris told us they were the first people. 
Then in class on Monday, Miss Harris showed a film strip on the cave dwellers and said they were the first people. I was confused. I raised my hand and asked a question. If the cave dwellers looked as they did and Adam and Eve looked as they did, who came first? Who were the first people? My serious question was not meant to cause giggles. Immediately, I got Mrs. Harris's look and pointing index finger. That meant to head for the coat room in the back of the class. I was glad. It was quiet there. I could think. I needed answers, even if no one was around to give them to me. That's when I realized what was wrong with this old new book. The people all looked like Dick and Jane, the kids in my reading primer, or people on TV, and they were all white. Even Jesus had white skin and yellow hair. None of them fit what Miss Harris taught us about what people living near the equator looked like. They had brown skin and dark hair. I didn't like the feeling growing inside me. I was feeling like I didn't want the book anymore, and I wanted to give it back. Mama and Daddy wouldn't want me to do that. Deep down, I really didn't want to, but the pictures were all wrong. I had to do something. If I was going to read this Bible, I had to make it readable. Last Saturday, I got a new box of crayons and a new coloring book. I love to color. I always stay in between the lines. There were only eight colors, and the only one that came close enough to the skin color I was looking for was brown. A black would hide features, so I used that for hair. To keep away from tattletailing mouths, I worked on my project in the privacy of my bedroom. But this day, I decided to stretch out in the dining room table just as Daddy was walking by. What are you doing to that book? He picked it up. This book of all books? And it was a gift. I had no words, but Daddy had a lot of them. The worst thing about his punishments were the talks. We'll talk later. I prayed to Jesus with the yellow hair for almost anything but that. I hoped he'd hear me. Daddy's lectures went on forever and sometimes into the next day. The thing was to keep a low profile, stay out of sight. All went well for a while, things quieted down, but not inside of me. I was already in trouble. I put the book back under my pillow and waited for the house to be quiet. I grabbed my box of crayons and the Bible and headed for the bathroom. I locked the door behind me. I wouldn't let myself turn back. Sitting on the floor, I opened to the story with Jesus and the little children. I colored them first. Now it was Jesus' turn. After a while, I let out a long yawn and stretched. I packed up all my things. I opened the door and bumped into my father. He was headed for the kitchen for his usual snack. Daddy looked at my hands. I looked at my feet. What would happen to me now? Had Daddy run out of lectures for me? Come near to me, he said. I followed him into the kitchen. Show me what you were doing with your crayons in that book. I opened my mouth and started to cry. I blurted out everything. It's not fair. It's not fair. Mrs. Harris say we matter in the world, but nobody in this book looks like us, and the stories take place near the equator where people have darker colored skin like us. See, everyone in this book looks like the people on TV. Even Jesus has yellow hair. What were you doing just now? I couldn't take it, Daddy. I just couldn't take it anymore. I opened the book to Jesus with the no longer yellow hair. See? Daddy looked at the picture for a long time. This is what you were doing? I nodded. I wanted this little girl to look like me, and Jesus, I hesitated, to look like you. The silence between us was waiting on his answer. Then Daddy chuckled. He does kind of favor me. And she kind of looks like me too, doesn't she? Daddy got quiet. What are you thinking about? I asked. Hmm... 
Thinking about what you did to the book, I see why you did it. I think you had a good reason to do what you did. I did. Well, I guess nothing left to do than share a slice of Mama's chocolate cake. Suddenly, we were eating the cake, looking at the pages I colored, reading and talking about the stories, and laughing. Then Daddy stopped reading. Now what? I asked. I'm proud of you. He smiled, hugging me. Me too, I answered. It's just like Mrs. Harris said. Things like this do matter in the world. All right, I'm going to read one last short story. This one is James Baldwin's Great Debate by the editor, Wade Hudson. James Baldwin looked out at the sea of faces in the auditorium in Cambridge, England, often in demand to share his views about racial injustice and the treatment of black people in America. Baldwin was an articulate, moving, and insightful writer and spokesman. That's why he had been invited to speak. The Cambridge Union Society at Cambridge University had organized a debate on February 18, 1965, with the topic, The American Dream is at the Expense of the American Negro. To tackle this challenging subject, they had chosen Baldwin and William F. Buckley. Buckley was an established magazine editor, political thinker, and founder of the conservative magazine National Review. He had made his position about racial equality and justice very clear in a 1957 National Review magazine piece entitled, Why the South Must Prevail. In it, he contended that white Southerners were entitled to take such measures as necessary to prevail politically and culturally over black Americans. When the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed, which guaranteed black Americans the right to vote, Buckley said it would result in chaos and mobocratic rule. He also voiced his concerns about other legislation and court rulings that addressed racial segregation in the country. Baldwin was an acclaimed novelist, essayist, civil rights leader, and political thinker. Born and raised in Harlem, New York, he once recalled, I knew I was black, of course, but I also knew I was smart. I didn't know how I would use my mind, or even if I could, but that was the only thing I had to use. He began to spend much of his time in libraries where he found his passion for writing. Baldwin's first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, was published in 1953, a semi-autobiography about a 14-year-old boy's discovery of his identity during the 1930s. It became a literary classic and established him as an important voice on racial and social issues. He became involved in the civil rights movement in the 1950s and wrote many articles and essays about what was happening in the American South. Leaders of the Cambridge Union Society felt that both men were worthy advocates for their positions. A debating and free speech organization, the Society was founded in Cambridge, England in 1815. It had hosted prominent figures from all areas of public life, including prime ministers and other leaders of state. On this February night in 1965, the auditorium was packed. James Baldwin spoke first. A short, thin man, he commanded the audience's rapt attention. And as he continued to make his case, members of the audience applauded when points he made resonated with them, which was often. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history and neither did I, he told them, that I was a savage about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. 
I didn't have much choice. Those were the only books there were. Baldwin gave vivid examples of how black Americans had been victimized by racism. He related how black Americans had helped to build the country and had received little compensation or recognition for their work. When he finished, Baldwin received a prolonged standing ovation. The announcer said he had never seen such a reaction at these events before. Buckley followed. An accomplished speaker, he engaged the audience with his intellect and humor, but it was obvious he was on the wrong side of history. Years later, he would change some of his views about civil rights in the United States. When the debate ended, a vote was taken to determine the winner. Baldwin won 544 to 164. The United States of America and countries worldwide are still grappling with race and social justice in the points that Baldwin and Buckley debated in 1965. James Baldwin's books and speeches continue to inspire and inform people today, especially those who are taking steps to do something about those issues. And that's the end of the section I'm going to read today. Considering it's an anthology, each section is different. So I hope you found those sections that I read intriguing enough to check out. And if not, there's always another book just waiting to be discovered. You can check this book out as a physical book in the library. Let us know if you need any help with your library card. Please check the show notes for some read-alikes. I have a lot of other anthologies, a lot of Black Joy. I hope you celebrate Black History Month learning. And thank you for listening. Join me next time for another Next Reads.